0: Hey, thanks. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, and not only here, but also in Carpinteria and in Ventura. Yeah, let's give them some love. We are, of course, one church in three different locations, bound together by the resurrection of one Lord, Jesus Christ. Um, if you will, let's just let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 8 through... Uh, 9, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 through 9, continuing in the book of Ephesians, the title of the message this morning is called the trauma of grace, (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2, let's let's actually start reading in verse 4 just to get the whole sweep. Paul says, but God is so rich in mercy that he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us a life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. and Here's our verse. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And everything that the name of Jesus Christ stands for, your authority, your power, your resurrection, your life, your righteousness and your justice, we come before that and take that with access before the throne of mercy before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And Lord, we're asking by virtue of your word that you would help us today. There's so many people represented in this church from so many different places of life. And Lord, you are able to speak prophetically to all of us. Where we're at, what we're dealing with, in the way that you do, by the power of your Holy Spirit, because we believe that your word is true. We believe that it is alive and that it is active, that it's able to discern between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and that it is, like Jeremiah said, a hammer that shatters the rock. I pray that today your word would shatter the rock of our doubt and our inadequacy It would shatter the doubt of our religiosity. It would shatter all the things that we have placed up above you. It would shatter our self-righteousness. That when those things are gone, when the word has done its perfect will, we would be able to see Jesus Christ shining brightly. We would run to you in repentance from all the other things that so easily entangle us. We want more of you, Lord. And so I'm begging you that you would, you would, you would cause me to be out of the way today. I'm here just by virtue of having to teach what your word says, but it's your word that speaks. So God, speak to your church today. We believe that you do. We believe that you will. So prepare our hearts to receive from it. In the name of Jesus, pray this in your name. Amen. The book of Ephesians is centered... And based on the human need for righteousness, meaning everything that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, in fact, most of his writings to all the churches are based on this common human need for righteousness. Our great human need is to be made right when we stand before God at judgment day. Our great human need is to be made righteous before God. Now, one thing that we have in common with the church in Ephesus, with that culture here in Santa Barbara, here in Carpinteria, and in Ventura, and along the coastlands, is this sense of, of pluralism. That we might believe that what God said is, is, is true. We might look at, at the word that Paul speaks to the church. And perhaps for some of us, we might even say, yeah, righteousness, that's a good, that's a good idea. And I agree, and that seems to work well for you. Perhaps there's uh, people who are not Christians in this room or in this church that would say, righteousness seems to work for you, Christian. That's great, whatever floats your boat. But I, I don't necessarily need righteousness. I'm doing fine. I wake up, I eat, I sleep, I've got a job. I'm pretty happy. I don't really need the righteousness that you say we all need. And that's not true. Everyone in this room... In Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, Ventura, listening now, everyone with an earshot of this needs righteousness, and we're actually actively searching it out, whether we realize it or not. Think about it this way. I want you to imagine for a moment what would be your own personal hell. What would be for you your ultimate misery? Something that would keep you from wanting to wake up at night. It's that thing. You know what it is? It's your greatest fear. It's that greatest obstacle. If that were to happen to you, you just wouldn't want to be alive. Imagine that. Everyone's got one. For some of you, it might be the fear of being alone. I hate, I hate being alone. Maybe for others, it's the sense of purposelessness that I will go through the rest of my life without anything to show for it. Perhaps for someone else it's fear of, of security or insecurity. Perhaps you don't want to die poor and homeless with nothing, you want to accumulate as much as you can. Now think of whatever it is that causes you to be miserable or it would be your ultimate misery, your personal hell. Now. Anything that you or I look to in order to rescue us from that is your functional Savior. Anything that you or I look to in order to rescue us from whatever that is, is for you a functional Savior. Say, well, I don't need a Savior. Jesus, that works for you, but I have no need of a Savior. Wrong. Anything that you go to to rescue you from these things is your functional savior. So, for example, if your fear is loneliness, perhaps your functional savior is a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse or your children or a community or a gang. If your deepest misery is the sense of loneliness, you will look to relationships. You will look to that person. You will look to that girl, to that man, to that spouse, to that significant other, to that self-medication. You will look to that as a means to justify yourself. That is your form of righteousness, self-righteousness. Well, what if it's insecurity? What if your biggest fear in life is that you will have nothing? Well... Your functional savior will be money, and you will do everything you can do to get that money. You will spend your life trying to justify why you should not be poor. Everyone desires some form of righteousness in one way or another, and if that's the case for you outside of God, your righteousness is always going to be based on how well you perform. Say, well, my fear, my personal hell is uh, insecurity and not having enough and not being able to meet my own needs, so I am going to be driven by this education to get this job and to get as much money as I can. Your righteousness is now going to be based on how well you perform at your job, which means your happiness and your joy is also dependent on your performance, self-righteousness. And this this is a natural drive in all of us apart from God it's a natural instinctive drive in us because all we know is to follow what Paul called in verse 3 that passionate desire the inclinations of our sinful nature that's that's the direction that we want to go we are by nature thirsty for righteousness and if we don't have it we will chase it down until the day we die so Paul coming into that type of culture which is not unlike ours speaks to a countercultural group of Christians to the church, and he says, not so for you. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is the gift of God. Salvation isn't a reward for the good things you have done. Nobody can boast about this type of righteousness. What is he saying? You're saved by grace, not by your own righteousness. Well, what is grace, according to Paul? It seems to be two things. It says in verse 8, God saved you by His grace. So grace by nature is some sort of a rescue operation. It's God on a rescue mission to save people who could not save themselves. On every movie and in every novel and every epic and every saga that you watch about a rescue mission, you'll see the same story. Someone is in some type of dangerous peril and some hero comes in on the scene and saves their life. God surpasses even the imagination of the novelists, not by saving your life, but waiting until the person is dead and, what's he say in Ephesians? Bringing them to life. He's better even than our movies. In the deadness of our sin, he actually, verse 5, he overpowers our deadness. Even though we were ra- we were dead because of our sins, He gives us life when He raised Christ from the dead, and He raises up from the uh, us up from the dead with Jesus Christ. He overpowers our death. So grace by nature is some sort of divine rescue operation. It's beyond anything that we're able to imagine. When I first got married in 2009, my wife and I, Brianna, moved into this tiny little apartment in Carpinteria. We lived in a studio about the size of my music stand right here. (laughs) And I remember one day, Brianna went out to do something, maybe to get some oxygen, and I stayed (laughs) in our little living room, and I, I remember sitting on my couch, and I just started reading a book, waiting for her to come home, and there's not a whole lot I could do in the living room. I couldn't even walk around or pace, so I would just sit on the couch and read, and this is one of those days, and I would sit on this couch, and I don't know if you're like this, if you're a reader, but I, I sometimes pretend that I'm reading because I really want to go to sleep, and so I'll just get really comfortable, and I'll, I'll, I'll put a book open, maybe put some my reading glasses on and look all academic, but really, I'm just, my, I get that concrete eyelid Situation going on and I can't open my eyes and this is exactly what is happening at my house and I, I begin to read but my eyes just grow tired and, and I still want to have the appearance that I'm doing something worthwhile and so I get a little more comfortable and I shift around and as the time goes on I start to actually lay down with the book still propped open just so I can fool anybody that walks into my living room and after a while I just pass out into a deep sleep and I wake up some hours later by a frantic pounding at the sliding glass doors, and it's my wife, Brianna. And I wake up to her shouting as she opens the door, what are you doing? Wake up! You left the gas on! Wake up! By that time, I had been in the living room, and I don't know how it happened, I don't know if I was reaching for something in the cupboard, and I bumped the uh, burner, but for hours on end, the tiny little apartment was being filled with this odorless, um, invisible gas, and I had passed out, and I had been there for hours, and she found me there on the couch, and she was screaming, get up, get up, and I was so undone by what I had already been breathing that I actually looked at her, I woke up for a second, and I looked at her, and I said, just ten, 10 more minutes, and then I laid my head back down. And she said, what? Oh yeah. oh yeah, 10 minutes, okay, I'll come get you later. <laughs> she said, no, you get up! She walked over to me, she grabbed my collar, she started shaking me on the couch, she grabs me, pulls me off the couch, throws me outside the sliding glass windows, and then she gets on a mission, man. She starts opening windows. She starts turning the fans on. She kicks me out of there. She gives me water. She starts pulling fans. Fans I didn't even know we have out of closets I didn't even know existed. She turns the gas on and she fixes everything. Wives save lives. She didn't ask my permission. She didn't pat me on the back. She didn't say, hey buddy, you can do it. You know. By the way, there's gas in the living room. You should probably check that. Maybe leave. Get up! She intervenes into my business. (laughs) Stiff arms me and says, I love you too much to let you pee that stupid. (laughs) This is exactly what Paul is trying to get across to the Ephesian church and to the reality in church. Grace is not some fairy dust that he sprinkles on you. It's not this cordial pat on your back. It's God saying, I love you too much to stay dead. I am going to intervene. You are walking towards that realm of destruction. I am going to stiff arm you, stop you in your tracks, and divert you from your chosen course of destruction. In a sense, God is stepping into your business and turning off the gas. Grace is a rescue mission. And when Paul says it's by grace that we have been saved, he's saying, he's using, he's stretching the grammar of the Greek. He's literally saying, not that you were saved at conversion by grace, but you were saved at conversion by grace, but you are continually, even now, being saved by the same grace. That means you a 90 year old seasoned Christian that has a degree in the Greek language, God is still carrying you along In grace he's still rescuing you and you see this all throughout the Bible the powerful active tenacious grace of God on behalf of people that call out on his name it never stops towards you Paul said of the Philippians in chapter 2 verse 13 God is working in you giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him He's overcoming your selfish inclinations to want to rebel. He, the author of Hebrews said in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, we, we follow him by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Paul would say to the Philippians, uh, excuse me, Jude would say in, a, in his 24th verse, all glory is to God. We have no room to boast. All glory is to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. You hear the language that's being used by Scripture in relation to grace? God is working in you, working for you, giving you the desire, giving you the power, initiating your faith, perfecting your faith, able to keep you, able to strengthen you, able to bring you. You ain't done nothing yet. It's the tenacious love of God expressed in the active grace of God. And Paul is saying this to the Ephesian church. People, you're fooling yourself, looking for money and looking for these idols and looking for these things to satisfy these things. None of your functional saviors can rescue you from your guilt. And that would be good enough if we stopped right there. And that is where some people stop with grace. That grace is just forgiveness. It's just the removal of bad things from your soul. But Paul doesn't stop and grace doesn't stop. See, grace is more than just a rescue operation, rescuing you from death. It's a mission to give you new life. You notice as we were going through Ephesians chapter 2, we've we, we seen all of these Negative connotations about the spiritual condition of man. You were dead. You were disobedient. You were many sins. You were obeying the devil. You belonged to the devil. There was something at work in your heart. You were refusing to obey God. Your passionate desires, inclinations of sinful nature. You were subject to God's anger. You were under his wrath. All of these things that were negative that Christ took away by grace on the cross. But then, he turns a corner and he doesn't just forgive the debt but he deposits something else. He doesn't just turn off the gas. He gives us fresh air. Paul would go on to say in verse 5 that it's by grace that we were dead, but he he makes us alive with Christ. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say he raised us from the dead along with Christ. And listen to this. Seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. We are now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Say, so no, I'm not. I'm seated in a gym, sitting in an old lemon packing factory and carpenteria. I'm in this building invented. I'm not actually in heaven. Yeah, you are not actually in heaven sitting by Jesus Christ, but you are there legally in such a way that when Christ sees you. He sees everything that Christ has accomplished. When Christ sees you, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. He takes you and everything that you have done wrong and everything that you have not lived up to in this life and he gives you everything that Christ deserved by his perfect obedience in life. And he does that by giving Christ what you deserved, wrath and death. Paul would say to the Ephesians, yeah, you can't. You can't look to your functional saviors to rescue you from your guilt, but you can't look to them to make yourself feel good enough about yourself as well. There's always gonna be that endless cycle, that void, but you were saved by grace. You were rescued from the misery that you deserved and given the reward that Christ deserves. He's saying to us, he's saying to the church abroad, universal, self-righteousness doesn't work ever your endless spinning of the wheels to try to attain something. Your self-righteousness doesn't work because you don't have enough to give yourself. By grace, you are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There was a novel that came out by Victor Hugo called uh, Le Miserable. Some of you have maybe seen it or read the book. And In this classic novel of redemption, the the primary character, his name is Jean Valjean, it starts off with this character as being unjustly imprisoned for a a long period of time. He starts off as an innocent, he starts off as a fairly good person, (laughs) And he is unjustly imprisoned for something that he did not do. And through a series of events, he ends up in prison for uh, approximately 19 years. And in prison, Valjean actually grows victimized. He starts to feel sorry for himself. And from there, he grows bitter and resentful. After a while, after so many years of being in prison, he grows this self-righteous tendency. This is not my fault. It's everybody else's fault. I deserve better than this. It's that person. I can do better. I need to get out of here. Everyone has wronged me and I've wronged no one. This is totally wrong. He starts to, to dwell on this bitter sense of his own self-righteousness so that by the point he leaves prison, he leaves not as an innocent anymore but as a hardened criminal bent and intent on getting his own way and as he goes through town he's rejected by the shopkeepers and by innkeepers until he runs into this catholic bishop by the name of muriel and this catholic bishop is known for his hospitality and so he comes up to valjean and he brings him into his home and says you can stay with me i will give you a bed i will feed you food and you can stay here as long as you need But as soon as the bishop falls asleep, Valjean goes into the kitchen, steals the bishop's prized silverware, and takes off into the night. Selfish, self-righteous, bitter, and angry at the world, taking it out on everyone else around him. He gets caught by a couple of gendarmes, these police officers. They bring him back to the bishop's house, and they say, we caught him. Bishop, we caught him, and we've got the silverware, we got this criminal, here he is. Much to everybody's amazement, the bishop looks at Valjean and looks at the gendarmes and he says, you didn't steal those, I gave them to him. The gendarmes are like, what, really? Could have sworn that he was running like a criminal, like he had that criminal-like run in his eyes. Bishop was like, no, I, I gave them to him. Those, that silverware belongs to him. But actually, I'm so glad you brought him back because Valjean, you forgot the rest of the candlesticks. So here, take the candlesticks. It's actually one set. So here you go. I'm so glad you came back. Take it. He dismisses the police officers. They go off into the night. And Valjean is rendered speechless with his mouth, as Victor Hugo writes, quivering in silence. Because grace is amazing. Bishop looks at Valjean and he says Jean Valjean my brother you no longer belong to evil but to good it is your soul that i buy from you i withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition and i give it to god Now some of you have maybe watched the old film or you've maybe seen it in a play it's actually coming out this year i believe you might be watching that movie but it's actually in the book that the full detail of redemption is expressed masterfully by Victor Hugo. Because in the next chapter, chapter 13, we see Valjean leaving the bishop's house and undergoing this struggle inside, this inner conflict over what Tim Keller would call the trauma of grace. I just want to read you the first part of chapter 13. It says of Valjean, he wandered thus the whole morning, having eaten anything, not eaten anything, and without feeling hungry. He was the prey of a whole bunch of sensations. He was conscious of a sort of rage. He didn't know against whom that rage was directed. He could not have told whether he was touched or humiliated. There came over him this strange emotion which he resisted, to which he opposed the hardness acquired during the last 20 years of his life. State of mind fatigued him. He perceived with dismay that the sort of frightful calm which the injustice of his misfortune had conferred upon him was slowly giving way within him. What Victor Hugo is describing right there, he's describing that self righteousness that began to be built up over the course of 19 years in Valjean. That self righteousness that he built up to protect himself, that he built up in prison, is now coming into a head on collision with the grace presented by the bishop. And it is destroying Valjean. It is shocking. It is jarring. It is traumatic. Self righteousness was the only thing Valjean had for him in that prison. And for us, out of all the ways, and we can look at all the different ways that we manifest, looking for functional saviors, looking for functional uh, messiahs. I'm lonely, so I need a relationship, and I always need a relationship, or to be around people. Or I don't have people, so I'll self-medicate on something. Or I, I, I I am afraid of failure, so I'll chase success 100 hours a week and I will forego the the well-being of my family and my spouse and my kids because I need to be successful. It doesn't matter what way the face of it takes, all of them. Every way that we attempt to justify our own lives, self-righteousness is really all we actually have. And it's at the basis of everything that we do apart from God. But is it enough? Is that special job that you're chasing down going to be enough to put A smile on your face? Maybe. But will it put joy in your heart? Is that significant other enough to transform your life? Are your children going to live such successful lives that you will be able to live your hope and dreams vicariously through them? Is school going to do that for you? Is it enough? Here's the funny thing about self-righteousness. We have no Other objective standard to base how good we're doing on except for each other. And so the way we feel better is by doing better by comparison to other people. C.S. Lewis in the book Mere Christianity writes about self-righteousness. He calls it pride. Same thing. He says, now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. Competitive by its very nature. Now while the other vices are competitive only so to speak by accident Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Oh, no Only out of having more of it than the next man We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not They're proud of being richer cleverer Better-looking than others as long as you are proud you can never know God A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Self-righteousness is not just some petty vice that we need to be free of. It is a disease. It is a disease that robs God of his glory and destroys humanity. And it causes you to feel righteous, pseudo-righteousness, By looking down at others, to feel any sort of relief from your ultimate personal misery. And we have to ask ourselves again, is it enough? If you look down on enough people, will you finally attain that hope? Paul's answer, no. Only grace saves you. God saves you by his grace when you believe. So what does grace do? Grace bypasses all the symptoms, and it goes straight through the surface of our, our pseudo saviors, straight to the heart of our self-righteousness itself. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 27, where then is boasting, where is your self-righteousness? It is excluded. That's what grace does. It excludes your ability to brag. And grace has this profound effect on humanity, on people that understand it and get it, like Valjean. It somehow maintains our humility. See how Valjean felt when he was not only left off the hook, but given those candlesticks. He felt so low, and yet at the same time, in this paradoxical way, he was elevated to the clouds. Really? brought so low and elevated so high and yet grace takes it a step further. Grace traumatizes you by excluding your ability to boast in anything. If self-righteousness is a disease that causes us to look down on other people, grace traumatizes us. It shakes us on the couch while we're dying. It wakes us up and it causes us not to look down at others but up to the only person who has ever fulfilled righteousness, who has ever obeyed perfectly, who has ever only lived in a way that displayed purpose and glory and honor. We look up to the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith and we see true righteousness. But first, grace shakes you up, says you have nothing to bring to the table in this arrangement. And yet, at the same time, when you're shaken up and you're traumatized and you're shocked because you can't do anything to save yourself, grace lavishes you with more than you ever deserved. And you're left like Valjean in the kitchen, speechless and trembling. This is how God chooses to save people. This is how God chooses to wrestle the affections of men and women. He doesn't do it by forcing you. He doesn't do it by saying, you stop sinning, you wicked man. You quit your habits and you quit that thing and you stop this and you checkmark that and I want you to do this. And you know what? Just stop it. Gosh told you a thousand just stop it (laughs) oh no I will smite thee (laughs) he doesn't do that he doesn't force us to do what we can't do when we're dead he brings us to life and he wrestles our affections by overwhelming them with kindness it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance Paul said so you want to enjoy God more in this life Enjoy his grace. Study his grace. Look at ways that he has shown you his grace. You know, Paul would say, said that at the beginning of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. We praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He said in the verse prior to where we're at in verse 7, That God does all of this. He saves people who don't deserve it. Why? So that he can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace. So no one in the universe can brag. God is the only one that can. And he brags about his grace. You want to enjoy him and give them the worship and honor that is due his name? Brag about Grace. Revel in the fact that you can't do any of the things that you tried to do. That you are insufficient in and of yourselves. Christ, who justifies the ungodly, will be for us the centerpiece of our worship for eternity. He will be that that we crowd around and say, you are the one who brings me sufficiency. It says in uh, Revelation chapter five, verse 11 through 14, John said, I looked again, I saw voices of thousands, millions of angels around the throne, living beings and elders, all of them singing in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. That is going to be the chorus of the church for eternity. So how in all of our filth and brokenness and insufficiency do we do and respond to the grace of God? This is kind of a misnomer, right? Because everyone in this room is like, okay, grace, awesome. Thank you for that. I made a note. What do I do? (laughs) Okay, I got it. Grace, I don't do anything. Okay, what do I do now? (laughs) Paul says in verse 8, it says it differently in the New Living Translation, but in almost every major translation it says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Which is not a work, right? It's a response to something that has already been done. Paul would say to the Romans in chapter 3, verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus. And so, for the person who is understood, like Valjean, grace, faith, is the result of a heart that has been gripped by a better love. A.W. Tozer would once describe faith as the gaze of a human soul upon a saving God. So you wanna know what to do? Stand before God in all of your filth and declare like Valjean and sinners everywhere, you are my all-sufficiency. I bring nothing to the table. In fact, I have ruined Half of my relationship's just getting out of bed this morning. But I lay down my labor. I lay down my struggles. I I lay down my pride. And I lay down my sick self-righteousness to rest in your finished work. Grace, I talked about this a couple weeks ago that often for the individual The things that God does for us and the way that we respond to him can be fairly subjective. I'm overwhelmed by the love of God. I feel that. Or when I'm worshiping by myself, I I just sense the presence of God. They're very almost subjective things that we, we sense when we're experiencing the presence of God's grace by ourselves. But anytime we breathe in The presence of Christ through the scriptures or through prayer. Anytime you breathe in, you've got to exhale. We exhale through community. And that's where the grace of God becomes more tangible. So what does the grace of God look like? What does it mean to exhale through community? The filmmaker, James Cameron, once said, when people have an experience that's very powerful in the movie theater, they want to go share it. They wanna grab their friend and bring them so that they can enjoy it. And he said, they, they wanna be the person to bring them the news that this is something worth having in their lives. That's how Titanic worked. <laughs> what grace looks like, grace through faith, look, looks like in community, is that we come together with all of our crap, with all of our garbage, with no facade, with no pretense, with no fakeness, but authentically broken, no longer freed to do so because we're no longer at the mercy of pleasing the people we're sitting next to. I'd say, yeah, your sermon sucks, I don't care. I've been freed. (laughs) You know why this is good news? It's because you're now not free to judge them and to compare yourself to them, but you're free now to love them and to be like the bishop towards the Valjeans. When you're free from seeking your right standing with others because you have a reservoir of righteousness from God to soak in and and drink from, you can be real with other people. You don't have to be afraid of what they think of you, and they don't have to be afraid of what you can think of them. You can let it all hang out. You can confess your faults in prayer. You can let them see your blemishes. You can glory in the fact that you're weak. People can sin against you, and you can forgive them by the grace of God. And isn't that what the people outside of the church need to see when they look in at us? And so it's not just grace in community, but it's grace in mission. The people in California do not need to look into a church filled with a bunch of perfect people. We're trying to look like perfect people. Why? Because we're not. And they're smarter than we think. They see a group of people gathering on Sunday morning that are trying to be perfect. They'll say, you're not perfect. I know you. I saw you on Monday. You're a hypocrite. What they need to see are broken, sinful people that have been transformed by the grace of God and that can sin against one another and forgive each other because Christ has forgiven them. And they need to be able to say, I can come into your church even with all of my garbage and I will be accepted, not based on what I have done, but based on what Christ has done. People who have been graced by an undeservingly kind God, the world needs to experience a traumatizing grace. But before they can, we have to first. So here's what you do. Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. Let your Valzanian lip begin to tremble. Let your soul be traumatized by a grace that simply does not make sense. Be humbled to the dust, Christian, because despite your inadequacy, despite your feelings of loneliness and your purposelessness and your sense of insecurity and your doubts, Christian, God enjoys you through Christ. You enjoy your God. Heavenly Father, pray this morning in the name of Jesus. that you would fill this, these places that we are meeting and gathered today across the, the coastline, that you would fill these dwelling places with your presence. We declare as the body of Christ that we are insufficient and inadequate, and we have been searching for something more, and we have not found it. We turn in the name of Jesus to Christ. And God, where we are having a hard time turning, maybe where we are confused, maybe where we don't understand, maybe where we are suffering from addictions so strong that we just cannot beat them, I pray for the active, tenacious power of the grace of God to intervene into our lives this morning and turn off the gas. Pray that in our church we would experience this grace by turning our face away from the assortment of functional saviors we have gathered together, the good works that we have attempted to do to make ourselves feel better, and the people that we have tried to compare ourselves to, and we would turn towards the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are the champion. You are the hero. As we respond in repentance for our self-righteousness, And our fake heroes, I pray that you would save the day. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, as we worship this morning, you you know how we do things. If you need to go into a corner of the building and be by yourself, or you need to sit in your seat and worship, if you need to throw yourself on the carpets, at the feet of Jesus Christ, or take communion, there's communion to either side, also in the back, that you can remind yourself of the grace of God, that his body was beaten, and his blood was shed for your, your sins, you can do that, but whatever the cost, chase after Christ with tenacity, as he has already been chasing after you, let's worship,